taking care of business. We're back in the story of Joseph. Today we're at Genesis 47, verse 13. I hope you have a Bible. Okay, if you don't, we have some that you, one that you could use today. Just slip up your hand and our ushers will be glad to hand you a Bible. And this is going to be on page 36 of the Bridge Bible, the paperback that we hand out. Just slip up your, your hand if you'd like a copy. You're, you're going to need it if you're going to stay with us. One of the most important concepts in the Bible is called stewardship. A steward is a manager or superintendent of someone else's possessions or property. Uh, for example, they might be in the ancient world, they might be in charge of business and banking and property and agriculture, overseeing all of it. A steward's job is to manage well. A good steward takes his responsibilities seriously. A good steward is a person of high integrity and high moral character. A good steward is trustworthy because they usually handle a significant portion of wealth that does not belong to them personally, but belongs to the owner. After Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17... He became the steward of Potiphar's house. He was promoted to the most important role in the household next to Potiphar. And he was in charge of everything. Potiphar was a wealthy Egyptian official in Egypt. Okay? And Joseph was promoted to that role. And the Lord was with Joseph. And Potiphar's house prospered. Next. Joseph was thrown into prison. Remember that? Potiphar's wife gave a false report, and Joseph was unjustly accused, ends up in prison. But guess what? The Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph was elevated to be steward of the prison. And everything within the walls of the prison were under the care of Joseph. Joseph had a stewardship even in prison. He wasn't on break just because he was incarcerated. What happens next? Well, after Joseph got out of prison, remember he interpreted a couple of dreams, including Pharaoh's. Joseph is promoted in an unbelievable way to the most important role in Egypt. He becomes the governor of Egypt. He now has a stewardship with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh. He was put in charge of everything, second in command only to Pharaoh. And the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph served his earthly master well. He made wise decisions and he ran the government efficiently. He served uh, the king of Egypt faithfully. He was a good steward. He was honest, totally trustworthy, with strong moral fiber. And God blessed the stewardship of Joseph. Today, we see a bit of his skill in management. Genesis chapter 47, beginning at verse 13. 
Number one, first we see Joseph taking care of national business. Look at that, verse 13, a national crisis. This is where we left Joseph last week in our story. Verse 13, there was no food. However, in the whole region, because the famine was severe, both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. This is a national and regional crisis. Reminder, how did it get there? God told Joseph about Pharaoh's dream that there were going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of vast prosperity, and then there would be a famine. And Pharaoh believed what Joseph said. And so Pharaoh uh, just employed Joseph on the spot to run the show for all the things that were coming. So crisis management is now required. A crisis manager is needed. And it's going to be Joseph. National stewardship, verses 14 through 26. We are now in the third year of the famine. The first two years passed before Joseph's family came from Canaan. They got, remember, they ran out of food in Canaan. They kept coming to Egypt for food. And then uh, God in his sovereignty brings the whole family. It's the way they are. They survive in Egypt because of Joseph and the resources that Joseph provides. And this whole thing about the Pharaoh just welcomes them in and gives them the best part of the land. So um, we see national stewardship, verses 14 through 26. First, in verses 14 and 15, we have a cash and carry plan. Joseph is just really a practical guy, the cash and carry plan. Verse 14, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and uh, Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. What is he doing? He's managing the resources of his boss. And there is nothing deceitful here that Joseph's going to do. There is no evil in Joseph's motive. And he's not doing anything uh, for Pharaoh um, that's evil. Now, watch what happens here. Um, Now, Joseph had already, Joseph knew that there was prosperity, seven years of vast prosperity. You know what happens in prosperity? We just waste a lot. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph stored up excess. And so his granary is full when the famine comes. And then he begins to release the grain. And first he sells it. Now, one of the things that you're going to see here with Joseph, because some things are going to happen here that some of you are going to get nervous about because it doesn't seem like this is the way to do it. Joseph is putting the entire country under a discipline that's going to work in this national crisis. Verse 15, when the money and people of Egypt of Canaan were Uh, was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. So Joseph takes all of the money in the land for food. Now, is Joseph hoarding? Is he using these resources in an irresponsible way? If you study the big picture, you'll see Joseph was highly disciplined and is going to prove to be highly skilled in his distribution process, managing through a major national crisis 
where millions of people will have their lives preserved and won't starve. Verse 16 and 17, livestock for food plan. So Joseph responds to the people, then bring your livestock. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and their goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them back through that year. He, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. Now, Joseph did not impose martial law. He did not say, okay, you got to do it this way. Nope, he just negotiated with them. He offered them a product and he sold them what they needed to survive food. These people had to be wise and careful with what they did, okay? Joseph was continually exchanging resources for resources. And Joseph brought them through that year. Uh, Joseph's skill is actually promoting survival for these people. That's the cash and carry plan. Uh, First, there was the cash and carry plan for food. Then there was the livestock for food. Now it's land for food, verses 18 through through 22. Look at verse 18. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food and and um, we with our land will be bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. Now this was not uncommon in the ancient world for someone to sell themselves to get out of debt or to survive. This was sort of like a practice Now, we get really nervous when we hear stuff like that. I'm saying this is a part of their culture. This is a way of survival. Um, There's an assumption here that there's not abuse. Okay? This is, uh, and by the way, there's everything we know about Joseph in this story. There is no abuse at all. So Joseph, verse 20 bought all the land in Egypt and Pharaoh and the Egyptians, uh, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from the end of Egypt to the other. So now all of the land belongs to the Pharaoh. And now the people are in contract with the Pharaoh. And Joseph has been feeding the people. He's been distributing resources wisely and carefully, and the people are involved. They've been involved at every step, and now um, they they want to survive. Verse 22, however, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them, this is what they did, and this is why they did not sell their land. Interesting thing happens here. Joseph honors the priests of Egypt. He honors his master's uh, whole religious perspective here. 
Now, there's something in us sometimes that we just want to correct everything. Now, Joseph didn't say this religious perspective was true or valuable or worthy. He just didn't uh, ask them to sell their land. And Pharaoh had provided for them, made an allotment for them, and so uh, they get the discount here. Now, we move uh, verses 23 through 26 to the tax plan. Joseph said to the people, now, now that I've bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is the seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth to Pharaoh that the other four-fifths uh, may, may you keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. So Joseph is going to provide the seed that they need to keep going. This is not welfare. They are going to have to work to have food to live, and they will. Joseph knows the famine is coming to an end. And they are going to be able to live, and they're also going to be able to use their resources, and they're going to be required to, to support their government. 20% taxation. Not cash, but it's going to be from their crops. Oh, that some of you wish you had 20% taxation. Verse 25. Here's how the people respond. This is what the people thought of Joseph. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. They are grateful. Now, you know, it just seems, it may just seem weird, maybe not, but there's just something that seems difficult about people sort of being enslaved to Pharaoh voluntarily or how Joseph did this. You know what happens in countries where a famine hits and the government plays games with them? Millions of people die. They just die because nothing happens for them. Joseph, in his wisdom, stored up all that God provided and he, didn't, he distributed it carefully and wisely in a way that kept the people involved every day. And they survived. So, um, verse 26, So Joseph established it as a law concerning the land of, in Egypt, still enforced today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. So, now... Uh, So just how do you judge Joseph's crisis management? I don't usually ask what people think, and, uh, but think about this. There's a different time, a different, different culture, and sometimes it doesn't fit with the way we would recommend. So if you have a better way, how would you do it and have people actually survive? Because when there's an abundance, we typically waste resources. We've seen governments waste resources. We've seen overindulgence on the part of a few. And Joseph, with this highly disciplined, Joseph got no benefit from these resources. He never used any of them for his personal use. Okay? Taking care of family business, now we jump to uh, 47, verse 27, and guess what's happening now, keep in mind, Joseph is dealing with the people of Egypt. 
That's who he's provided all of this food for during the famine. Verse 27, family prosperity. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. Remember, that was some of the best land. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased in number. How did that happen? God brought his people. The one, he had made promises to them, and he brought them in a land during a famine, and they were able to prosper there. Now, it wasn't because Joseph was just handing them money. They were working hard, and God was blessing them. Yes, they were given this land, but Pharaoh gave them the land. And uh, they were fruitful. Their families grew. They increased greatly in number. And by the way, God had made a promise back to Abraham in Genesis 12. And he made that promise to Isaac. And then he made that promise to Jacob that they would be fruitful and that they would multiply. They would be like the stars in the sky and like the sand at the sea. Too many to count. Verses uh, 28 through 31, a family promise. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. Let's just do a little quick math. Jacob comes to Egypt at 130. Now he's 147. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He ends up in prison. He's not freed from prison until he's 30 years old. 30 years old, he's raised up before Pharaoh and becomes the governor of Egypt. Nine more years, seven years of prosperity, and then two years into the famine. At the age of 39, he sees his dad again. This is 17 years later. Joseph is 56. The family promise. Verse 29, when the time drew near for Israel to die. Remember, Israel is Jacob. They are the same person. Israel will become a nation, but Starts with Jacob. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son, Joseph, and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. And so Jacob senses death is near and He asks Joseph, he says, put your hand under my thigh. Sounds a little kinky, doesn't it? That's the way solemn promises were made in the ancient world. Abraham had asked his steward or servant, Eliezer, to do this before Abraham died. He said, I want you to get a wife for my son, Isaac. Promise me on a solemn oath that you will follow through. So this is what Jacob is asking me. It's a solemn promise that you're going to follow through even when I'm dead. So when I rest with my fathers, here's what he's asking for. When I'm dead, I want you to carry me out of Egypt. I don't want my bones to be here in Egypt. I want to go back to where Abraham is buried and where Isaac is buried. Because 
Jacob understands something about the promises of God. He doesn't understand it all, but there's something about the future in this promised land. By the way, it's going to lead to a new heavens and a new earth. There's something about being there. So when resurrection comes, he wants to be there. God could do it from Egypt too. But by faith, Jacob is looking, I I don't want to be here. I want to go back to be with Abraham and Isaac, my fathers. Family reminder, verses 48. We move to chapter 48, verses 1 through 4. Sometime later, but it's still the same year, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come, Israel rallied his strength and he sat up on his bed. So uh, remember now, Joseph has two, two sons. Remember that they, they were born in Egypt. You know, J- Joseph was away from his family for years and, and Joseph took a wife, an Egyptian wife. And they had two sons. And uh, they were given Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim or Ephraim. And to have influence to name your sons with Hebrew names in Egypt. You know, we talked about Joseph had a powerful impact on the steward that served in his home, that they worship, even though he was Egyptian, he served the same God that Joseph did. And uh, it doesn't say in Scripture but I believe his wife is totally on board with Joseph on uh, all of this perspective. And so uh, now it's about these two sons. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. It's also Bethel or Bethel, we call it Bethel. Beth is house, El is God. It's the house of God. Jacob had a prior experience with God and God spoke to him at this location. This is big for Jacob. Here's what I want you to know about Jacob. Look, he says, God Almighty appeared to me. El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Jacob, if you remember, as we've watched this dysfunctional family, and Jacob was very much a part, and Jacob was very much a reason why this family was so dysfunctional with a favorite son and a favorite wife, and that gets complicated. One favorite wife, one wife is enough, you know? And Joseph had four women, and they had 13 kids, and there was painful sibling rivalry in the families. And there was painful relationships among the women. And there was much immorality. And this is really a dysfunctional family. Jacob has been in neutral for years spiritually. He's just let it happen. He, you hardly ever hear him mention God. But now, Jacob is not the same guy. Jacob was old. He can hardly get around at this point. But he remembers those years where God intervened in his life and encouraged him and helped him 
and told him what was coming and gave him this promise about his family. And now uh, Jacob's spiritual life is in a whole different realm. Now that he's seen God preserve uh, Joseph and God gave Joseph two sons and Jacob never thought he would ever, ever see this son again. And it's just reminded him of all that God had said in the past. It's like he'd been in neutral, he'd been asleep, and now he is awake. And he remembers the promises. And uh, these promises, one of the things you need to know about these promises, they tie the entire Bible together from Genesis to Revelation, and they will not be ultimately fulfilled until the book of Revelation. They are extremely important. They tie the Old and the New Testament together. So in verses 5 through 22, we come to a family blessing, blessing, and the reason we find in verse, beginning at verse 5, now then, this is Jacob, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. This may sound a little bit strange to us. It's as if Jacob is saying, I'm going to take your sons. I'm taking them away from you. They're mine. They're going to be just like my other sons. But it's not exactly like that. Here's what Jacob is saying. Jacob had 12 sons. They are, will become the 12 tribes of Israel. They will become the nation of Israel. Joseph is one of the 12 sons. And Joseph is by far the leader, the one who walked with God. And Jacob is saying, I'm going to take your two sons and I'm going to adopt them as my sons. And they will take the place of you, Joseph. And there will be 12 tribes. And we don't count Levi when we get to Moses because Levi is the Levitical priesthood. And they they have a different job and they won't be given land. And it will be Manasseh and Ephraim. They're getting elevated above all the other grandchildren. Okay, that's what's happening here. This is a pretty significant thing. So um, we see in verses... um, So verse 7, as I was returning, Jacob says, from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrathah. And so I buried her there beside the road of Ephrathah. That is Bethlehem. You know, I think Jacob is just having a bit of a senior moment here. He's highly emotion, emotional, thinking about Joseph and the family and Joseph's sons. And now he remembers Joseph's mother, Rachel, and he remembers how he buried there. He's singing about death. He wants to go back. He wants to be buried back there. And um, by the way, all senior moments aren't bad. Um, So verse 8, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? He can't see. He's not sure which one is which one. They are the sons God has given to me, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me that I may bless them. And, and Jacob's going to pronounce a blessing on the sons 
of uh, Joseph. Verse 10, now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. And so Jacob comes to this point in his life, and Jacob feels very blessed by God to have Joseph there and to have his two sons there. And now we see the intention in verses 12 and 13. Joseph has an intention about this blessing. Then Joseph, verse 12, removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim, on his right toward Israel's left and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them close to Joseph. Joseph is trying to help his dad. His dad is a little feeble. He's not strong. He can hardly see. So Joseph intends to help dad. So he, br- he brings Manasseh and he places him at dad's right hand. He brings uh, Ephraim and places him at dad's left hand because Manasseh is the oldest and the oldest gets the first blessing and the youngest the second blessing. That's Joseph's intention. He's trying to help dad out. Uh, But verse 14, there's a switch. But Israel reached out his hand and put it in Ephraim's head, uh, though he was younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head. This old guy didn't do this accidentally. Okay? Uh, He's too tired to do that, just to make fumble into making a mistake. He reached out his right hand and he put it on Ephraim's head. And though he was younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was his firstborn. So what's he thinking? That was not Joseph's intention at all. But Jacob intentionally did this. The blessing, verse 15 and 16. Then, then he blessed Joseph and said, so Father, bless his son. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk and the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. This is fantastic insight for Jacob who has been in neutral spiritually. He hasn't been walking with God for years until he reaches this latter portion of his life. And now he looks back and says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. That's Psalm 23. He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. Because Psalm 23 is going to come a few hundred years later. But he understood God had been his shepherd. Guess what? We have a shepherd too. The good shepherd. Um, Verse 16. The angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. Who's the angel? Well, it's, please notice it's not an angel. It's the angel. And in the Bible, that's the angel of the Lord. That is God himself. God himself came to Abraham. The angel of the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And God himself came to Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God earlier in his life. And Jacob understands now. And... um, the angel who has delivered me from all my harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called my, by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. 
Now, Jacob is blessing these boys so that they'll have the same blessing as all of the other brothers, actually their uncles. And um, the misunderstanding, verses 17 through 18, hang in there, stay alert. We're going to come to an end. Here we go. Verse, 40, uh, verse 17, the misunderstanding. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father. You know, you have to correct your parent because you're not doing it right. It's sad, though. Sometimes we get to that point where our kids have to help us do things rightly. But Joseph thought he was helping his dad doing the right thing by changing the hands. Verse 18, Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. And verse 19, the explanation comes from Jacob. But the father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. He's prophesying right now. He's speaking the words of God about the future. The younger one, the younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them and said to them, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, because these two tribes thrived later. They're, right now, they're just young guys. And these families will thrive. And Ephraim, the youngest, their tribe will become the strongest. And out of Ephraim will come one of the greatest leaders of all time, and his name is Joshua. And he will lead God's people um, into the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he will enable them to possess the land and divide the land in a major uh, historical event in the life of God's people. Now, um, go back with me now 120 years. You don't even know where we are now, do you? 120 years. Jacob is a young man. Jacob has a twin named Esau. Jacob's dad is very old. Jacob's dad can't see very well. When you get older, some of your senses um, aren't as sharp as they are when you're younger. Jacob has this idea. Dad's going to bless Esau pretty soon, and Esau is going to get the birthright and all the blessings from God. So Jacob thinks, I'm going to take the birthright for myself. I'm going to trick my dad. And his mom, Rachel, helps. This is silly. This is dysfunctional stuff here. And so they trick Isaac, and Jacob dresses up like Esau, and dad blesses uh, Jacob thinking he's blessing Esau. And now here's, here's Jacob in his old age, same situation. Joseph, a son who doesn't want to trick him, tries to help him with the older and the younger. And God works through all of it. And he says, nope, it's going to be the younger one. And so Jacob does it God's way. And the youngest gets blessed. And now the promise comes in 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Valuable piece of land Jacob owns back home. Hasn't seen it for years. He wants Joseph to know he can have it. But Joseph, I want you to understand, you're not going to be here forever. You're going to go back. It's a promise of God. And he leaves that with, uh, and with Joseph. And now we're getting close to the end of the story, which we're going to try to finish next week. And here are some lessons. We only have two. 
Some, uh, some lessons. First of all, faithful stewardship is our responsibility to God. Faithful stewardship is our responsibility before God. Remember, Joseph had a stewardship. He was one of the greatest examples. If you want to study stewardship, study the life of Joseph. He was a steward in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with him. Whatever he did and put his hand to, it prospered. I can't guarantee you that part. It happened in Joseph's life. And then he was a steward in the prison. Who would have thought you could be a good steward in the prison? And then, boy, it's really, he had a really high-powered uh, position as the governor of Egypt. And the Lord was with him, and he managed the resources of his master extremely well, high integrity, high morals, honesty. And the Lord was with him. A great example. You and I have a stewardship before God. Psalm 24, verse 1, as a reminder, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Guess what? That's still true, guys. Everything belongs to God. Problem is, it's a little bit of a hangover from living in the U.S. We think it's ours. And we like to own, we have this great, we live in a great country where we can... um, raise funds, we can earn money, we can often earn more than we need so we can buy things that are more than needs. It's, it's a great place to live. Problem is we get really possessed and we think we it's ours. I do with it what I want. But when you understand the big picture, when you understand who God is and who we are, we begin to see, no, God owns it all. He's just, I didn't get a pick to live in this country. I didn't pick the family. I didn't pick the job, or I can say I picked the job, but God is the one who enables us to have health, to have skill, to have education, to have opportunity. When we begin to understand, he's the master, I'm not, and he's entrusted me with a lot of stuff. It's amazing. One of the things he's entrusted me with is this whole role of being a pastor. I'm entrusted with that. That's a stewardship. And I'll be accountable to him for that. And I've been entrusted with the family. And I've been entrusted with material possessions. You know, God didn't say I couldn't have them. I'm just entrusted with them. They're part of my stewardship. My job is to manage the resources God has given me. Matthew 25, verses 19 through 21 is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the talents. Here he's talking about a master. He entrusts his servant with, with stuff, with money. And he goes away and he wants to steward to do business for the master until the master returns and now the master is going to be returning after a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them the man who has received the five talents brought the other five master he said you entrusted five talents see i have gained five more his master replied well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things i'll put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness and one of the things that jesus was teaching to his followers is He's the master. He's going to go away. And then he's going to return. And there's going to be an accounting. And there's a day where we all get to stand before Jesus and giving an accounting of what he's given to us. You know, are we, how do we manage? Are we selfish? Are we kind? Are we generous? Do we follow the master? You know, giving is about stewardship, giving our resources 
and caring for our resources. It's not just about money. It's about things that we have. It's about our lives. I've been given a family. How have I handled my role as a parent? That's a stewardship, a responsibility before God. And uh, one other passage, Colossians 3.24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He's the master. I'm not. And I have a responsibility to him. Last lesson, number two, trust in the sovereignty of God. These are two kind of wide-sweeping lessons here. Trust in the sovereignty of God. And that one of the things that we learn from the story of Joseph in the big picture, that's what's great about seeing this. It just didn't happen in a week where Joseph prayed and the whole world got solved. It was a lifetime. Joseph walked with God and he went through some very difficult situations, which is some big clues there about, hey, you and I might go through some pretty tough situations. And Joseph walked with God and he, his character was intact. And uh, God worked out his purposes and his ways. And we can trust God to keep his promises. The promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, they carried over to Joseph. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they carried over to Joseph. Uh, no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how tough it seems to be, God is going to come through. He promised never to leave or forsake you. He promised to provide for all your needs. He promised to love you. He promised to give you strength for every day, for everything that you need to do. But you need to trust him. One day at a time, one step at a time, not once a week. Trust him. That's about following through. It's about taking God at his word. Last passage, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worked for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I find that greatly encouraging to me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I don't have to work for my salvation. My salvation was given to me as a gift from God. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sins, and he gave me the gift of salvation, and he gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit to be in my life. And now Paul says, work it out. Work out what God worked in. You have it. Now let it be manifested every day in the way you live. Let Jesus show up through you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. So if I engage with God and I take a step by faith, just little steps one day at a time, God is going to work out what he wants to do. His will is going to be accomplished. for The purpose he has for me, I'm just going to walk right into it. I don't know what's going to happen six months from now or six years from now, but I just walk one day at a time. And God is going to work through me. He's going to work out what he, he has for me. He's going to do it in his way with his purposes. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Father, for the story of Joseph. And um, thank you for, for what we can learn from watching Joseph's life and seeing how you work and revealing yourself. And God, uh, Joseph is a great example of a trustworthy 
servant, a steward. Jesus Christ is our master. May we be trustworthy stewards for him. And may we trust you, God, to believe that you are, you are working in our situation. You're faithful. And may we be faithful to you for Jesus' sake. Amen.